John chapter 13. And I'll read verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's brother, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have said to you? Or do you, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, every time we come to your word, we're reminded of the need we have of your spirit to minister to us. Whatever our interpretations and however accurate they may be, and however insightful our conclusions, we need more. We need you to send your spirit to own your word to our hearts and shape us by it. So, Father, we pray that you will pursue your word this morning. Minister to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those of you who are familiar with the Gospel of John are aware that in John chapter 13, we turn a new corner in the Gospel. A new section is, of the gospel is opening here. We're coming to the close. We have a new focus at this point. Jesus is not now addressing the Jews at large, but he is addressing his disciples in particular. And that is the section, chapters 13 through 17, in detail speaking to his disciples. But more than just a new focus, we're coming to the end. And if you have read the story even once before, you catch on early in these first couple of verses of this chapter to see that the Apostle John is turning a corner and pointing us now toward the end. There are a few hints of that. He speaks of Jesus' hour that had come. 
If you've been reading careful through the, carefully through the gospel, you might remember that a couple of times through the gospel. There was this hint dropped. His hour had not come. His hour had not come. And now we come to chapter 13, and he knows that his hour had come. Also, if you've read the story even once, you recognize the connotations and the atmosphere that comes with John's mention of the Passover. It is not just a Jewish feast, but it's a Jewish feast that gives definition to Jesus' death. We're coming to the end. We're coming toward Jesus' death. And that is explicit here in verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And as John, or as Jesus approaches then this last hour, his last moments with his disciples, John notes for us here that he loved his own who were in the world. A wonderful expression. Jesus loved his own who were in the world. Now again, if you've been reading through the Gospel of John, that little phrase, his own, his own, you know, you pick up on that. It has connotations and reverberations of God's electing purpose. These are those whom God had chosen, whom God has loved from eternity and given to the Son and sent the Son to save. And the Son now has come on this errand of mercy to save these whom the Father had given him, these who are his own. And it says he loved his own who were in the world. He is about to return to the Father, to depart from the world. And he loves his own who are in the world. That is to say that Jesus' attention at this point, and not just his affection, but his concern at this point, is for his disciples, those whom he loved, as they would be left in the world with all of its peculiar dangers. And he's concerned for them and his attention is on them. So John sets up this passage, this whole scene, with reminders of Christ's approaching death. And then we have the episode itself. It's a familiar passage, even if we are not always convinced as to what is going on here behind the scenes. The scene itself is pretty straightforward. Jesus and his disciples go to this room to observe the feast, and it comes time to wash feet. You're reclining at a table, you're sitting low, you're walking with sandals on dirty roads. It would be nice if the feet were clean. They sit down around the table. Who's going to do it? Jesus gets up, takes out his outer garment, takes a towel, wraps it around him, fills a basin with water, makes his way around to each of the disciples, washes their feet, dries it with the towel, finally makes his way back, takes off the towel, puts his outer cloak back on, and returns to them. So what's the point of all of this? Is this a third sacrament for the church that Jesus is establishing here? Some denominations have been formed just because of that. They think that here Jesus is establishing a third sacrament. We should practice foot washing. Well, I think there are plenty of clues in the passage to tell us, to direct us away from that. If you look at chapter 13 again, verse 7, Jesus remarks to Peter, What I am doing, you do not understand now. That is, Jesus is explicitly cluing us in, cluing them in, that what he is doing 
is something beyond the obvious. There's something behind the scenes here. Jesus is washing their feet, sure enough, but he's intending by it something further. What I'm doing now you don't understand, but you will understand in time to come. We have the same in in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, resumed his place, he asked them, do you understand what I have done to you? Pretty clearly, Jesus is looking to something symbolized by the actions that he has taken. And all of this, I think, informs verse 14 when he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There's an intended symbolism in all of this. And Jesus is saying in so many words, what is important here is not the act itself, but what is symbolized by the act. This act of servitude is symbolic of another act of service that I will do for you. I suppose it would be a good time right now then to stop and just make the observation that the Gospel of John in particular is just full of this kind of symbolism. Plays on words. Subtleties of various kinds. One of the things that John is famous for is this playing on words. He'll say something, or Jesus will say something, and you wonder, what does he mean by this? And you'll take this interpretation or that, and both of them have great arguments for them. It must be what he means. And you wonder, does it mean both? How should we translate this word? Should we translate it this way or that way? You get great arguments for either, and you think, is he doing both? And you begin to catch on as you work your way through the Gospel of John that there are many of these kind of puns built in subtleties, innuendos, and symbolism built into the whole narrative, both on Jesus' part and on the Apostle John's part as well in recording it for us. So this is a symbolic scene, and Jesus tells us that very explicitly here in verse 7. So it is symbolic. Of what is it symbolic? Well, John has told us already, is setting us up in the first couple of verses of the passage, that he's leading us in a very specific direction, telling us about the death of Jesus. He mentions the Passover. We know what all of that connotes. He speaks of the hour of Jesus, the hour in which he, for which he has come through the Gospel of John. This is the hour of his success, the hour of his glory, the hour of his triumph. And yet when it comes to the end, it's the hour of his shame and humiliation, the hour of his death. But it's not just his hour, it is the hour in which he would depart from this world. Again, driving us to think in terms of Jesus' death. In fact, at the end of verse 1, there is another expression that leads us there as well. He loved them to the end. Now, some of you may have the New International Version, which translates this in an adverbial sense. He loved them completely. And again, it's one of those places. What does he have in mind? He loved them to the end. Does he mean to the end of his life? Or does he mean by that he loved them ultimately, completely? You think, is this a play on words? Does he mean both? It seems that he is. In whichever view you take, you end up at that same place. He loved them to the end. To the end of what? To the end of his life and his death on the cross. He loved them completely. How did he love them completely? He loved them completely by dying for them on the cross. 
And so John is setting us up to think in terms already of Jesus' death so that those of us who have read at least the rest of the story, coming back, we see that John is directing our thinking in that kind of a way. And not just John, but Jesus himself. Beyond that, we have the mention in verse 2 of Judas and this plot of betrayal underway. Again, you know all that that entails. And then verses 3 and 4. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and gave them a spectacular display of his great glory and power. It's just not what you read, is it? But knowing that all this authority was his, knowing that he had come from the Father, knowing that he's returning to the Father, what does he do? Takes off his coat, puts on a towel, washes the feet of the disciples. Is that the display of his greatness? Or again, is he getting, trying to direct us to think of another display of his greatness that is just symbolized in all of this? In verse 12, in verse 4 and in verse 12, there's a, a couple of words that are used here that are just unusual. I won't bore you with the Greek, but, but in verse 4, he takes off his outer cloak. And it's just not the normal word that is used for taking off a garment. In verse 12, he put his coat back on. And again, it's just not the normal word that would be used for putting your clothes back on. And you think, why did he use these words that just aren't the normal words to be used then? Well, again, if you've been reading carefully through the gospel in the original, you might remember that in chapter 10, Jesus uses these same words. Therefore, the Father loves me as I lay down my life for the sheep. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And it's the same language that John, is, or that John is using for us here. And it seems that John is, again, giving us one of these subtle reminders that he's directing us to think beyond what Jesus is doing to what is being symbolized by it. In fact, it wouldn't be that difficult to to imagine if Paul hadn't written before John wrote. It wouldn't be that difficult to imagine that when Paul wrote that famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, he who was in the form of God did not think this was something to be grasped for his own glory at at all expense, but he made himself nothing humbled himself, became the form of a servant, having been found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. It would be easy to imagine that Paul wrote that passage with this passage lying in front of him. And in fact, that is the direction that John is directing us to think. John then is directing us to think in stages. What a stunning thing it is that the Lord from heaven would stoop to wash the feet of his disciples. No, what a stunning thing to think that the Lord from heaven would give his life for his disciples. Now, certainly, the disciples didn't catch all of this at the moment. There's no way they could have. They had no clue at this point of the cross, let alone some symbols of the cross like this that are so subtle. 
But from our perspective, you can't miss it. Look at verse 8. Peter says to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And we cannot read that. We can't read that without thinking in terms of Jesus' death and the cleansing virtues of his sacrifice and how he has given himself to wash us from our sins. And that's a repeated emphasis throughout the Gospel of John. And notice Jesus tells them in verse 7 again, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but you will understand afterwards. Again, that's a note that's repeated in the Gospel of John. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it until after he rose from the dead. And then the penny dropped. This is very evidently something that Peter caught on to. We find him not long later preaching in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That is to say, if I don't wash you, you remain in your sins. And then what verses 8 through 10 emphasize is that this cleansing which Jesus gives is complete. Peter says, you will never wash my feet. Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, you remain in your sins. or You have no part with me. Peter answers, well, then don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head too. Jesus says, no. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. That is to say, the cleansing from sin which we receive in the death of Christ does not need to be repeated. There's a sufficiency to the work of Christ, and once for all we are cleansed by him. And it doesn't need to be repeated. Now there are daily sins which dirty our feet, as it were, and for that Dirty feet, there's a daily cleansing that is provided. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we don't need to be saved all over again. I remember hearing S. Lewis Johnson one time say that he had heard a testimony service and a man stood to give testimony to God, a very sincere Christian, but not instructed very well yet in these kinds of things. And he giving testimony to God, he said, I want to praise God and thank him that he has saved me. He has saved me now seven times. And Jesus, Jesus is making plain here, you don't need to have it all, all over again. But in this symbolic scene, our Lord illustrates then that great act of service for his people. Just as Jesus in humility took off his garment, laid it aside, washed the feet of his disciples, took the garment back and put it on. So Jesus laid aside his glory, laid aside his life, and took it back again. And in doing so, washed all of his people from their sins. This is his great act of service, and this is what is symbolized here. He loved them to the end. As Jesus would say, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many.
Now still, with all of that, just lying on the surface of the passage, there's more going on. Jesus is teaching something else. He's teaching a lesson on servanthood. Verses 14 and 15 again. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now it's important here, I think, to understand, first of all, that the washing of feet was a job that was given only to the lowest of the servants. Usually it would be a Gentile slave, female Gentile slave. Sorry, ladies. We do have some records of some wives who would do this service for their husbands. Some wives are like that. Amazing, isn't it? They love their family. There's nothing they wouldn't do for them. My wife is like that. She's here with me. She won't like me saying this, but she's she's like that. She serves us so much at our house. We have said many times, she spoils us rotten. We have said many times that she serves us so much that it makes us feel guilty. It's a guilt we can live with, of course. (laughs) Several years ago, we bought her a sweatshirt for Christmas, my two kids and I. It's to mom from the rest of us. A beautiful green, deep green sweatshirt embroidered across the front. Wife, mother, slave. (laughs) She wears it proudly. She goes out with it, and it's funny the responses that she gets. Usually it's laughter, but once in a while it's somebody who can't see the humor in it, and uh, they make sure she knows that. (laughs) But insofar as assigning a task like this, it was only to the lowest of the slaves. And it would never have been performed by a superior. But what is emphasized about Jesus here? Verse 3. He is the one to whose hands the Father had given all things. He's the one who had come from God, who was going back to God. Verse 13, he is our teacher and Lord. He is the Lord from heaven himself. And yet, verse 3 tells us, because Jesus knew all of this, he proceeded to wash his disciples' feet. And in fact, this is what is so startling to the disciples. You will never wash my feet, Peter says. And there's nothing about that that Jesus rebukes. He needed correcting. But there's no rebuke. Peter's protest was born out of reverence for Jesus. You will never wash my feet. Jesus says, in effect, this is the essence of my greatness. I came not to be served, but to serve. And this towel of servitude is just the symbol of my greatness. Gentile kings, they lorded over their people, but I'm not that kind of king. Indeed, this act of humility, which you see, it is only a symbol of a deeper humiliation and a deeper work of service that I will do for you. As the Apostle Paul would write, he who was rich 
yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. Can we say it this way? Jesus is the servant par excellence. You call me teacher and Lord, he says, and so I am. But understand, I have washed your feet. He loves to the limit. Now, I don't imagine that the disciples were particularly enjoying all of this. I imagine it was quite a bit awkward. I imagine if John, instead of Jesus, had taken the towel, begun to wash feet, they'd have been fine with that. Hey, way to go, man. His brother James probably would have said, hey, right foot, third toe, you missed a spot. It'd have been all right. But Jesus... And then when Jesus is all finished, he's pressing the point. Verse 12, do you understand what I have done to you? Of course I understand. You've washed your feet. But it's clear that Jesus is pointing to something deeper. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. I am your example. I am your model. Just as I have served, just as I have washed your feet, stooped to do this lowly act of service. No, just as I have stooped to lay aside my life, to wash you, so you must serve one another. Luke provides an interesting detail here. In fact, it's a very important one for us to see the whole scene. And that is that just previously to, previous to all of this, they were, the disciples were squabbling as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom. You see the irony of it? There was one person, it's been pointed out many times, there's one person in that room who had the right to consider the glory that would be his in the kingdom. But yet this one, knowing that all things had been committed to his hands, knowing that he had come from the Father, knowing that he was returning to the Father, stooped to serve those whose feet were dirty. And he says then, in effect, are your thoughts of greatness... Here's greatness. Let him who is great among you be the least. Nor is this some kind of empty exhortation. He gave us an example. He washed their feet. He gave himself. And doesn't this help us inform verse 34? Look down. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. That is, this command to love one another is not just some ill-defined notion of goodwill. This command to love, the love with which, which we are to show to one another, is exactly a gospel-informed kind of love. You love one another as I have loved you, as I have demonstrated it in my death, in my sacrifice for you. 
Well, there's more. Look at verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And here is the heart of our problem in serving one another. We are unwilling to be as humble as Jesus. And Jimmy, Jesus just puts the question out. Servant is not greater than his master, is he? The one who is sent is not greater than the one who sent him, is he? Are you greater than me? I have done this. So you should serve one another. Now, of course, none of us would ever com- dare to claim that we are superior to Jesus. And yet, in our unwillingness to serve one another and to humble ourselves in doing so, that's exactly our claim, isn't it? That kind of humility, that's for Jesus. That's not for me. But we have no right to think that the tasks which he has done are beneath us. He loved to the limit, and he proved it. And so he says, you must also. This is the one of whom John the Baptist said, he is so great that to stoop down and untie his sandal would be an honor of which I am not worthy. And yet this one, of whom John the Baptist thought so highly, did not think so highly of himself that he could not stoop to wash the feet of his disciples. And when he reminds us that we are not greater than he, it hits hard because we recognize when he says it that we often act as though we were greater. But Jesus is saying here that... If you want to be a follower of me, if you are to be one of my followers, then you are to follow him in humble service to others. Or can we take it that next step? We are to imitate Jesus even in his death. Still there's more. Verse 10 and verse 18 In both of these verses, we are reminded that Jesus also washed the feet of Judas. Now, don't put too much into that. Don't, with all this symbolism going on and washing the feet, speaking of his cleansing them and saving them, and, oh, is Jesus saved after all? Clearly, he's not going that far. He tells us that in verses 10 and 11, again, verse 18. point is, what kind of humility was this that Jesus displayed? Is it difficult to see Jesus stooping to wash his disciples' feet? How difficult is it to see Jesus stooping to wash the feet of Judas? How do you measure that kind of humility? And this is exactly the kind of example that we need. I don't mind helping out once in a while. 
him. He doesn't deserve my help. And did you know that the only people our Lord ever served were those who did not deserve it? And our Lord is teaching us here that there are to be no limits to the humility and the service that we are to willing to display toward one another for him. And finally, he says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now on one level, Jesus is saying something like there is blessing found in obedience. It's not if you know these things, you're happy. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And when we obey our Lord in this, on those times when we have humbled ourselves to serve others, we've not regretted it. There is blessing in obedience. But more importantly, I think Jesus is telling us here that in serving one another, we show ourselves to be like him, and we show ourselves to belong to our Lord. We are people who serve one another as we ourselves have been served. That is to say, our lives are shaped by the cross which has saved us. And so our Lord says, what greatness do you have? Social standing? Business success? Status in your church? Learning, giftedness, lots of money. What greatness do you have? Jesus says, don't let it go to your head. True greatness is this, when you, like your servant Lord, will stoop to serve the needs of others. In one respect then, this little picture is just a little picture of the big picture. God to the rescue, the Lord our help at a cost that is only his. That's the gospel. And this, he says, is the pattern that we are called to follow. His death is the pattern for our life. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have given to us in serving us. We're amazed the depth of your humiliation in coming to serve. And we see in this little scene, washing the feet of the disciples, such a great service that you have given to us. Forgive us, Lord, for our pride. Make us like your son, we ask in his name. Amen.